Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. There's a question that is popular in many Christian circles. Uh, One I trust you haven't heard or at least don't hear often at Santan Bible Church. And the question is this, what does that verse mean to you? Now, the reason I say that is the right question, the better question to ask is, what does that verse mean? Point being is the interpretation, the understanding, the meaning of Scripture is not up to the subjective exception and feeling of the recipient. It is the objective propositional truth from God. Now, having said that, there are passages that have layers of meaning, especially when we think of Old Testament prophecies. And so one of the ways in which we can do this, one of the ways in which we can approach this, especially when we're in a book like Haggai, is ask the following three questions. And namely is when we look at the text, what does this word mean at that time? In the year 520 B.C. to the post-exilic people, what did the word mean at that time? Second is, what does this word mean for all time? And what does this word mean at this time? In the year of our Lord, 2022 A.D. Uh, Put another way, we could say, what was the immediate meaning to the original audience? What is the infinite meaning? And what is the intimate meaning? What is the application that I should take from this to my life? Now, beloved, in the book of Haggai, we are finishing this book. This is our fifth and final message of this short two-chapter book. This is the fourth and final word that God gave to Haggai for the nation of Israel, for the nation of Judah at that time. Uh, We had seen that when last week we looked at the third word in Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19, that the third word of God by Haggai echoed sentiments and themes from the first word, namely that the nation of Israel was in need of cleansing of her sin of distraction. So also when we come into this fourth word, we see that it echoes themes that we picked up in the second word. In the second word of Haggai, verses 1 through 9, in particular verses 6 through 9, namely that the entire cosmos, the world, and the nations are also in desperate need of cleansing. And beloved, what we saw back in that second word in verses 6 through 9 is God punctures space and time with four I will promises to the nation. So also here in the fourth word, six times God punctures space and times with this sixfold I will, I will, I will promise from God to Israel, to you, and to me. But there is one great distinction here in the fourth word. There are no commands to the nation. There are no commands to you and me here in the fourth word. Only promises. In that second word, that fourfold I will promise in verses 6 through 9, that came after the threefold commands from God in verses 1 through 5. Be strong, be strong, be strong and work. Work and fear not. And then in verse 6, for, and then from there on, God gives the reasons behind the foundation of those commands that he had given. Not here. Again, beloved, there are no commands here in the fourth word, only promises. Now, if you've been here in the previous messages, you've probably heard me say 
that Haggai was a man of one message. Now, I have to either kind of correct that or clarify that. The one message is build the temple. Again, there's no command here, but even the context, the idea of God's charge to them to build the temple, which they will complete the temple some four years after this word, wraps into this. Now, beloved, here at the end, what Haggai is doing is he is shifting the focus. He's shifting his attention from the building to the builder. The building, the temple, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant temple that they were building was a blessing to the people of God. But beloved, the builder is the greatest and the ultimate and the grandest blessing. Um, Another distinction, in verses 6 through 9, under the umbrella of God's promises, we see that in the future, the wealth will come to the temple. But here, in the final conclusion of his three-and-a-half-month ministry, Haggai talks about the king coming to the throne. Beloved, follow along as I read the passage we have for us here this morning. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, what we see here in these four verses, it's really a twofold approach. God tells us precisely what he's going to do in verses 20 through 22. That's where the focus is. And then in verse 23, his focus is on why he's going to do it. We see these six I will promises spread through all of it, but that is the focus. What is God, what God is going to do and why he's going to do it, and it's all centered on on the promise of the coming of the messianic king. And the intent is that it would, to the original audience, encourage the people of God, to you and me, in our New Testament people of God, that it would encourage all of us to go on, that God would want us to not look at the future in light of the present, but rather look at the present, even in its at times discouraging circumstances, look at the present in light of the glorious future that awaits all of God's children. So, beloved, let's first look at what God is going to do in preparation for the messianic king. Verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So December 18th in the year 520 B.C. The third and fourth words are on the same date. The first word, chapter 1, verse 1, was on August 29th. The second word, chapter 2, verse 1, was on, in our modern calendar, September 17th. And then the third and fourth words are here on December 18th. Haggai's 
three-and-a-half-month-long ministry is coming to an end. So when we read those words, it sounds very familiar to 1 verse 1, 2, 1, and 2, 10, the beginning of each of the other words. But there are two significant differences. The first three words of Haggai all have the date first and then the messenger formula. But here we see that the messenger formula, then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai and then comes the date. Also in the first three words, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. But here we have the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Now, what is the importance? What's the, what are the ramifications, the relevance? What's the meaning of these two differences? And beloved, I think it is this. Namely, this fourth word, this glorious word, the emphasis here is on the word of the Lord and on the Lord of the word. That is why he breaks that pattern here. And in fact, when we get to our last verse, verse 23, three times you'll see the declarative equation declares the Lord. Twice declares the Lord of hosts. That is the thrust here. Now, what is this word? We go to verse 21. And God had commanded Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying. So, Here we see another distinction. We know that in the first word, it was spoken to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and then to the people. The second word was spoken to all the people. The third word, back in verse 9 and 4, was spoken to the priests. But here, this word is spoken to a singular man, Zerubbabel. And what we see as we go forward is, again, he is echoing themes of the second second word. Uh, We know that what God had told us back there is a reaffirmation of what we just know in general, namely that this world is in need of cleansing. And what we have here in verses 21 and 22 is a cosmological cleaning, a political cleaning, both of which were present in the second word. But here in the fourth word, Haggai adds a third component, namely a martial cleaning. Again, all these cleansing are in preparation for the coming messianic king. So first is the cosmological cleansing. And similar to chapter 2, verse 6, it is far-reaching, total, and all-consuming. Here in 21, he says, God says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. The first of these six I will promises here in the fourth word. And that that word shake, literally I'm going to earthquake the heavens and the earth. A a violent upheaval of the ground. And similar to the grammar that he had given us back in the second word in verse 6 is the grammar here is basically saying that this shaking, this this catastrophic upheaval could happen at any point in time. It could have happened at any point in time back when Haggai gave that some 2,500 years ago, and it could happen at any point here. God does not count time the way we come, but this imminent promise from God is what he is saying. And similar, again, to verse 6, is he's using Genesis language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the point is, here, the same God that created the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, is the same God that is going to cleanse the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. Now, I think I've referenced uh, 2 Peter even in some of the previous messages, but turn for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
just to drink in the richness and the commonality of this coming cosmological cleansing. In 2 Peter 3, I'll begin in verse 3. I want us to focus our attention on verses 7, 10, and 12. But to set the stage, I'll begin reading in verse 3 of 2 Peter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So these mockers are uniformitarian mockers. They're evolutionary mockers. Where is the promise that he said was coming? Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Now focus on verse 7. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And the point there is we know that the earth, the earth is radically different now than it was in the antediluvian world. In the world before the flood, there was one landmass. Evolutionists call it Pangaea. Now the continents have been split apart. So there is a massive catastrophic upheaval of the earth itself. But what Second Peter tells us is the very heavens themselves were changed. But what he says here is the current heavens, the present heavens, are reserved for this coming judgment. Now look down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So there's this imminent aspect. The same kind of imminent promise of Haggai is here in the promise of Peter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. And then finally, verse 12. Well, at the end of verse 11, the application that we looked at before is that you should, what kind of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So, beloved, this cosmological cleansing that Haggai promised, Peter promised, and it's still coming. So, there is that. Now, we move to the second element of this cleansing back here in Haggai 2, namely the political cleansing. And again, still in preparation for the coming of the messianic king. And this is to similar to chapter 2, verse 7 in the second word, to overturn the nations of men and the kingdoms of men to make way for the kingdom of God. Verse 23, God continues, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. Back in verse 7, he used that same word, shake, I will shake the nations. Here, God, through Haggai, uses a different word, this word overthrow, destroy, sweep away. This Hebrew word describes total devastation, total destruction. Most oftenly, it's used in the Old Testament in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. For example, in Genesis 19, verse 24, at God's judgment of destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, it reads, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew 
those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So that was the direct fulfillment of the use of this word at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But for example, Moses in Deuteronomy 29, God through Moses, Deuteronomy 29, 23, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive. No grass grows on it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Um, a couple other examples, Isaiah 13, Amos 4. These are other places in the Old Testament where this word overthrow, this total destruction and devastation is used in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is what God is going to do for the nations of the land. But then back here in verse 22 in Haggai, he throws in a different word. It continues, and God says, I will destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will demolish, exterminate, shatter the power of the kingdom of the nations. This word translated destroy or exterminate or shatter carries a connotation of a sudden catastrophe. Uh, In Jeremiah 51, we see this where basically God is telling the nation of Israel that he will use the nation as a war club against the nations. Jeremiah 51, 20, you are my war club, my weapon of war, and with you I shatter nations. With you I destroy kingdoms, and with you I shatter the horse and his rider. So again, similar to the motif that we saw back in the second word, there is a desperate need and a coming cosmological and political cleansing. But now the new element here from Haggai is the coming martial cleansing, still in preparation for the messianic king. And the point here and the point that we see in fulfillment of what God is doing in this world is there is no need nor place for war, nor is there a need nor place for instruments of war in the messianic kingdom. And that's why he says at the end of verse 22, and I will overthrow, second appearance of that word, I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down everyone by the sword of another. So the chariots and the riders and the horses, the swords, these are instruments, weapons of war. Similar thinking, similar message was given by Micah. In Micah 5.10, Micah prophesied, it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. Zechariah 12.4, so after Haggai, Zechariah, who was a contemporary, in Zechariah 12.4 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. So this cleansing of war is part of God's promise to all people, and particularly first to the nation of Israel. But back here in verse 22 Now, God is the one that is acting, but notice the immediate agent of destruction in this verse. Everyone by the sword of another. The point there is the nations, the powers, have built in within themselves the seat of their own destruction. And we've seen God act in this manner before. For example, Judges chapter 7, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army. 
Or in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 23, when they, the sons of Ammon and Moab, had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Beloved, all that to say, what God wants us to understand is all the kingdoms of men, all the great empires of the world are fragile and unstable and contain within themselves again the seat of their own destruction. Our world in at this time, as it was at that time, our world is alive with powers set up in opposition to the word of God, in opposition to the God of the word, in hostility to the gospel message as enemies of Christ. But, beloved, evil is fragile and unstable, and it will prove fragile again. What that means is at times when you, when I, when we seem small and defenseless, that makes no difference when God is the one who says, I will overthrow, I will destroy. He will act and we will do nothing but watch and praise and give thanks to God in his glory. And he's done this before. There's nothing new under the sun Turn back to Exodus chapter 15 when God rescued his chosen nation of Israel from their captivity in Egypt uh, through the parting of the Red Sea. And you know the story. In Exodus 15, uh, the song of Moses, this is the first song recorded in Scripture rehearsing the deliverance of the nation even through the Red Sea and not just the parting of the Red Sea for God's chosen nation, but the collapsing of the Red Sea on the enemies of God. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord. And, beloved, as I go through here, watch for the same themes. Watch for the message overlap that we have here in Haggai and in the New Testament. So, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Beloved, that is the same message. Or coming back to the dynamic of there's no place for war or the instruments of war. In Isaiah 2 verse 4, Isaiah prophesying of this future peace. Do you remember at the end of the second word that God will provide in abundance after this violent upheaval of the shaking of the cosmos and the nations in that second word, God will provide an abundance of glory and an abundance of what? Of peace. Isaiah 2, 4. God will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. Watch this. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. 
So the same God, the same Yahweh, who is a warrior in Exodus 15, Yahweh is his name. The ultimate goal of this God of warrior is peace, is peace. And what does this mean, beloved, for you and me at this time? What did it mean to them at that time? And what does it mean for all time? It means all dominion, all peoples, all peace for all time. That is the message of Haggai. That is the message of God. So, beloved, that is what God is going to do in verses 20 through 22. Now that leads us to why he is doing it in verse 23. The preparation for the Messianic king is for the purpose of the presentation of the Messianic king. You can think of cause and effect. And in a sense, it's reversed. Uh, Verse 23 is the cause, and verses 20 through 22 are the effects. Verse 23 reads in its entirety, on that day. And listen as I read this verse. Watch. Three times you'll see declares the Lord. Twice the Lord of hosts, the military title, the military name of God. Like uh, the beaver said in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Aslan, he's not a tame lion. In any event, Haggai 2.23, that's better than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is the word of God. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So towards the end, you see that little three-letter word, for. That's the cause. That's the end goal of God. Now, God is describing here why he's going to do these things. But first, he answers the question, when I'm going to do it. Right there at the beginning, look at it. On that day. On that day. Notice he doesn't say on this day. It's not on this day when Haggai is preaching his second sermon there on the Temple Mount to the people. It's on that day. It's at a day in the future. And even that little phrase, that day, that has huge end times importance. Zechariah, again, Haggai's counterpart, and Zechariah prophesying in the future, 21 times Zechariah uses that phrase, that day. In Jesus' Olivet Discourse, during the Passion Week, when he is preaching and telling his disciples about the end times in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and Luke 21, you'll see that phrase, that day. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the mature church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So, beloved, that day that he's talking about is the day of the Lord, the day of God, even as we read in 2 Peter 3. And turn now for a moment to 1 Thessalonians chapter. 5. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, the topic in the first 10 verses is the day of the Lord. And look at verses 1 and 2, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full way that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Again, there's that tremendous imminence that it could happen at any time but now before I read verses 3 through 10 I want you to be on the lookout for this 
vigorous dichotomy embedded in the day of the Lord. It's a vigorous dichotomy between true groups of people, between the saved and the unsaved, with two pronouns, first-person pronouns and third-person pronouns. We, us, our versus they, them, theirs. Two domains of these two groups of people, of light and darkness. Two natures, those who are of the day and those who are of the night. Two behavioral patterns, two habits of being alert and sober-minded versus being asleep and drunk. And finally, two eternal destinies in a strong contrast, in a vigorous dichotomy between those who by God's grace and mercy are appointed for salvation and those who have imminent sudden destruction looming over them. Listen as I read 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 3 through 10. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or Asleep, whether we are awake here or our beloved loved ones, our Margies, our Jeremy's, our Bob's, the list goes on, who are asleep in Christ, we may together live together with Him. Beloved, the day of the Lord is significant, it is powerful, and there is a massive chasm of difference. Come back to Haggai chapter 2. And what we see here after God tells us when he is going to do this, now we get into why he is going to do it. And what we see is the servant of the Lord, the seal of the Lord, and the scion of the Lord. The first, the servant of the Lord. Verse 23, God says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Now, the English word take, that's just kind of, you know, Take That doesn't really carry much oomph behind it. But this Hebrew word translated as take has this connotation of special, careful selection. For example, in Genesis 24, verse 7, when Abraham was remembering how God plucked him as a brand from the fire out of his pagan worshiping way in Ur, he uses this. Abraham says and remembers that the Lord, he testifies, the Lord who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth. And then even in the same verse as you go on further, God instructs Abraham to take a wife from there, the same word. So even there we see this idea of adoption and marriage as part of this careful, loving, tender selection. Or Deuteronomy verse four, or excuse me, chapter four, verse 20. The Lord has taken you This is a nation of Israel. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession. 
Beloved, that is the weight behind this I will promise to Zerubbabel. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Now, we see Zerubbabel seven times in this two-chapter book. Four times he's been referred to as governor. Governor, 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 governor. Now, in the context of this messianic king, we might think that God would say, you are my king. But that's not what we see. He says, you are my servant. And that's fascinating. Why does he do this? I mean, Haggai doesn't explicitly say, you are king. This is deliberately subtle. This is divinely ambiguous. Why? Well, one is because the historical Zerubbabel at that time was not a personal fulfillment. He was a positional fulfillment. And there's a second reason. In the same way, in the Thursday morning superlect men's Bible study through John chapter Four, uh, we see in the life and ministry of Jesus, and you know this, that in the same way that there was this kind of rising crescendo of hostility against Christ on the part of his enemies, so also there's this rising opening and declaration and clarity of the message of Christ. And basically Christ is matching the perfect timetable for him to die, not on the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, but to die in the cross on the Passover is all part of God's perfect plan, and that is even part of what he reveals and when he reveals it. So, beloved, in the same way, Haggai here doesn't want to promulgate the idea of a new king explicitly in the context of the Persian Empire. And this divine ambiguity allows for both the lesser present Zerubbabel and the greater future Zerubbabel. Zechariah 3, verse 8 is another example. If we turn over just a few pages, what Zechariah is doing here is he's giving a word to Joshua, the high priest. And this is what Zechariah says to Joshua. He says, listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are, watch this, a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. So, What we know from that is Joshua and the other priests were symbolic of something greater, of a greater branch, of a greater servant. So also the present historical Zerubbabel is symbolic of a greater Zerubbabel that will come in the future. And of course, the equation my servant also gives us a great understanding of the beauty and the connection and the reestablishment of God's good promises. David, in 2 Samuel 3, verse 18, 2 Samuel 7, verses 5 and 8, God calls David my servant. Or turn and read Isaiah 40 through 55 chapters. Don't do it now. It would take the rest of the sermon. But go and look at your own and you will see that equation, my servant, speaking primarily of Christ. So David and Jesus. And in the middle, the hinge connecting is this man, Zerubbabel. So the servant of the Lord. Next, as we're getting to the end of this great book is the seal of the Lord. The the seal, the authenticity, the authority, the beauty, the security. Verse 23, Haggai continues, and God continues, and I will make you like a signet ring. Like a signet ring. So this is a simile. It's not a metaphor. 
whatever that's worth. But a signet ring, a signet ring is the ring that the king would have. And he would take that ring and he would impress the stamp in the wax or the melted clay, which would basically indicate that that document, that title deed, whatever it might be, had the full weight and authority of the king who bore the signet ring. Uh, For example, Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave his signet ring to Joseph because Joseph was the mouthpiece, the representative of Pharaoh. Uh, In the book of Esther, Ahasuerus the king, the wicked man Haman, had Ahasuerus' signet ring. But then Ahasuerus took the signet ring from the wicked man Haman and gave it to Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, as a measure to rescue and preserve the apple of his eye, the nation of Israel. But now here with Zerubbabel, when we think of Zerubbabel in the context of the signet ring commentary here, again, Zerubbabel was appointed by King Cyrus back in 536 B.C., 16 years prior to this ministry to go back and to build the temple. We also know that Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim. King Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was the last legitimate king of Judah before she was taken into captivity. And in Jeremiah 22, some two centuries prior to what we read here, or excuse me, not two centuries, two generations prior to what we read here in the book of Haggai, in Jeremiah 22, I'm going to read verses 24 through 26 and verse 30. You can listen or you can turn there if you want. But this is God speaking through Jeremiah to Zerubbabel's grandfather, King Jehoiakim. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off and I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. And then verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So, beloved, the point is, two generations prior to Haggai, Jehoiakim was torn off and tossed on the scrap heap of history. And so the signet ring is gone. Now, what we might think and what the people might think, the nation of Israel would be, oh, no, what about God's promise to David? Even in that prophecy of judgment from Jeremiah, he talks about the throne of David. And we remember in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David as part of God's promise to him in the Davidic covenant that he would establish an eternal throne for him. So is God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 at risk? But what we see here is now this man Haggai wrapping up this short three and a half month ministry takes the language of Jeremiah, reverses it, and says, you, Zerubbabel, will be my signet ring. Now, This Hebrew word signet or signet ring, it's almost synonymous with the word seal. For example, in the beautiful Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, in 
Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, with the beautiful picture of love between a husband and wife, you read these words. Put me like a seal, same word, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Beloved, this seal, this signet ring speaks of dignity, security, certainty, beauty, and authority. What does a wedding ring mean? It means never out of sight, never out of mind, always here with me. Beloved, in the same way, we know from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, verse 13, in him, you also, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Beloved, the promise of God to the nation, the post-exilic nation of Israel through Haggai is the same as God's promise to you and to me through the Apostle Paul. And what this means at this time, right here, right now, beloved son of God, daughter of God, is at your lowest time, at your most discouraged time, at your most rebellious time, at your most depressed time, God loves you with the same love that he loved you when he died for you on the cross. That's what it means, the seal of God, the signet ring of God. Beloved, you are certainly safely and securely in the hands of this God. The servant of the Lord, the seal of the Lord. Lastly, the scion of the Lord, S-C-I-O-N. A scion, according to the arbiter of all information, the search engine DuckDuckGo, a scion is a young shoot or twig of a plant, especially one cut for grafting or rooting. Also, it is the descendant of a notable or noble family. It's the same kind of thinking behind the messianic prophecy through Isaiah 11 verse 1. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And what God is telling Zerubbabel is, you will be my scion. And at that time, the personal historical Zerubbabel actually banished from the scene. We see him last mentioned in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. But after that, he is no more. And we don't know what happened to him. I mean, it's possible that King Darius got wind of even the divinely ambiguous language of Haggai, and maybe he used the common corporate vernacular, did a reduction of force. We don't know what the case is, but we don't see Zerubbabel after Zechariah 4. I mean, if you read Zechariah chapter 6, you would think he would come to be there. But that is, again, beloved, because he's not a personal fulfillment. He is a positional fulfillment. Jehoiakim, grandfather Jehoiakim, again, was torn off and tossed on the scrap heap of history. But Haggai, when he resurfaces and brings back that language, could hardly be clearer when he gives this triple-barreled reestablishment of the promise of the coming messianic king. And he wraps it up at the end of verse 23. For, for, that for, F-O-R, that explains the why. This is the cause behind even the most magnificent, awesome effects of verses 20 through 20, 
2. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is God's sovereignty. Isaiah 42, verse 1, again, common themes. God says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Or earlier, when God was giving words of assurance and encouragement to the nation of Israel as they were poised on the plains of Moab, getting ready to go in and enter and take the land that God had promised them. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 7, God says to the nation of Israel through Moses, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And as a good teacher, as a good preacher, God, of course, but even Moses anticipates a question, an objection, or perhaps an even measure of human pride. Did God pick me? Did he pick us because we're all that in a bag of chips, as my beloved Margie used to say? No, verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Again, beloved, this is God's sovereignty. This is God's divinely appointed, divinely accepted servant, seal, and scion. Zerubbabel last appears, Zechariah 4, in the Old Testament. However, you need only turn over a few more pages and you will see in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, you'll see Zerubbabel. Also Luke chapter 3. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 genealogy is the legal genealogy of Jesus through Joseph. Luke's genealogy is the biological genealogy through Mary. And what we see when we look at Luke's, there are four epics from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to exile, and then the last one from the exile to Jesus. So, beloved, the point here is Zerubbabel, the scion, is the hinge between the exile, from David to exile, and from the exile to Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 12. After the deportation of Babylon to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, or same in Luke 3, verse 27. So, beloved, you have David, Zerubbabel, and Jesus. And as we looked at when we opened up the first word, the initial word to Zerubbabel back in chapter 1, verse 1, the name Zerubbabel means seed of Babylon. So, this Babylonian-born, Persian-appointed governor, Zerubbabel is representative of the Davidic line. And beloved, the, even the name Seed of Babylon, what an absolutely beautiful and powerful demonstration of the fact that the gospel, the good news, the coming Messianic king comes to Israel first and to the Gentiles. Again, Haggai is for Israel first. The Messianic prophecies of all the minor prophets of the Old Testament is first. The gospel goes to the Jews first. Romans chapter 1, verse 15. And to the Gentiles. And when we think of this hinge man Zerubbabel, name meaning seed of Babylon, the wicked pagan, again, what a beautiful expression of the amazing grace of God. And beloved, what this means is that in Christ, 
The world's nobodies becomes God's nobility. The world's nobodies become the Lord's nobility. Beloved, don't look at the future in light of the present. Look at the present in light of the glorious promises of God for the future. The blessings of God, the way he finished the third word, yet I will bless you, verse 19. The blessing of God is faith's fuel. The messianic king is faith's fulfillment. That's the point. Beloved, the church survives and the church thrives, and it will for all eternity. It will for all time. That is the gospel message. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the knowledge we have of you. We thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from our rebellion, from our transgression, from our sin. Thank you, Lord God, for removing the scales of darkness from our eyes so that we can understand your word, so that we can see your beauty. We can praise you and honor you and worship you. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, for these promises. And we long to see you, Lord Jesus, our messianic king, seated on your throne. We praise you and thank you that right now you have ascended to the right hand of the Father. You are reigning in heaven. You are reigning in our hearts. And we long for the day, Lord, when you will shake the cosmos, you will shake the nations, you will cleanse all things and rule with a rod of iron even here on earth. And Lord God, for anyone that is here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that is not worshiping you as the risen king in their heart, we pray you would grant them repentance. Lord, help them to come to you to ask for forgiveness, to repent of their sin, and to place their faith in you alone and trust in you alone by faith alone for their salvation. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we do these things and that we pray. Amen.